Welcome to the School of Wellbeing podcast. I am your host, Meg Durham, wellbeing speaker, educator, and coach. Together, we're going to explore lessons to help us live well. Let the learning begin. Welcome to episode 55 of the School of Wellbeing podcast. Thank you for listening and I hope this conversation inspires you to take deliberate action in your life. One of my hopes for the future is that our young people will have the opportunity to learn the skills of wellbeing just like they learn science and maths, that they have a safe space to feel their feelings and think about their thinking, to learn the lessons we didn't learn at school because the research is very clear. When we're feeling good, we function better. And when we're functioning better, it's easier to relate to others. And one of my fears, and I have a few, is that our young men are feeling more and more lost. They have grown up in a time where there is a lot of focus on girls' education, and I'm all for that. However, I'm hearing more and more from teachers and parents that the young men they work and live with are struggling to find where they fit. This is why I was so keen to chat with Nick Brax today. In his new book, Move Your Mind, How to Build a Healthy Mindset for Life, Nick honestly shares his lived experience and the unique struggles young men face. In preparing for this conversation, I came across a quote by the holistic psychologist and I really wanted to share it with you before we began. Here it is. Toxic masculinity isn't something a man chooses. It's the result of being wounded. It's the result of not learning any emotional skills. It's the result of not actually knowing how to emotionally connect. Men, like all humans, deeply want to be loved. They want connection. And so many men are frustrated because they don't have the skills to do that in a healthy way. Majority of men are lost. Men need help. They need healing. They need encouragement. Men need space for them to learn the skills they were never taught. Men need empathy. And I think these words are a powerful call to action for all of us to provide men with more spaces to access the skills and the support they need to step into their worth and authenticity. So with this in mind, let's jump into today's show. In this episode, I have the joy of chatting with Nick Brax. Nick is a storyteller who has dedicated his adult life to creating positive conversations around mental health. Nick has personally delivered over a thousand seminars at schools and corporate events around the world and has presented two TED Talks one covering how creative and entrepreneurial drive can combat depression and another one on the growing suicide epidemic. In this conversation, we discuss how personal challenges can become our motivation, the impact exercise can have on our mental health, why becoming aware of our thoughts is so important and so much more. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Nick Brax. Nick, welcome to the School of Wellbeing podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Super excited to have this chat today. Today, we're going to be talking about your mental health journey and the lessons you've learned along the way. So I'm curious to know from you, why do you think it's so important that we talk about mental health? Well, I think on on every level, really, I think communication is everything. And I think fundamentally, we need to understand that it's okay to talk about this stuff and that if we don't talk about it, how are we going to deal with it? How are we going to get help? How are we going to understand what's going on if we don't have that education? So 
I got into this stuff over 10 years ago and even then it was very taboo and there wasn't a lot of conversation and sort of compared to from then to now, there's so much more talk about it, which is fantastic, but it's still got a long way to go and, you know, we can't really do enough. So I think it's just so critical on, on every level, you know, it's a highly complicated area. There's so many elements to it. So fundamentally, if we can at least talk about it, that's going to lead to the next step. And I absolutely loved your book, Move Your Mind. And I loved how you shared your personal lived experience and also bringing in really practical strategies that people can use in their daily life. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And thank you for that. Um, with the book and with you know my company, Move Your Mind, a big part, really the core of what we're trying to do, the two things are um, how can we get these messages out there in an engaging way on a broad level? whether it's through the book, whether it's through the podcast or through creating some content. I'm even making comedy sort of skits now and on a broader level, actually developing like a TV show and things like that. So there's that side of it. And then it's the other side is how can we give really simple and practical tools like in the book that people can actually do, you know, because there's so much information out there and there's so many good things, but so much of it's not practical. You know, we can get more overwhelmed if we're saying, okay, you know, great, this sounds really good. If I go on this crazy diet and, you know, this 12-week program where I've got to train three hours a day and blah, 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 blah. But how are we going to commit to it? Like if, if you can't fit it in, so it's like we've got to start simple. What are some basic things I can do even on a level of less than 1% a day improve my life? So that's what I believe in anyway, and I think that's what's worked for me and what I've seen work for other people. So I'm very big on the small, the small steps. And it brings me so much joy to see that you've got to this place where you're so confident about what works for you, what doesn't. But reading your book, you weren't always like that. Could you take us back to what life was like for you as a 12-year-old? Yeah, my whole life really, I suffered from anxiety and overthinking, compulsive thinking, have OCD, probably have undiagnosed ADHD to some, I, I would say. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I was always an extremist in my mentality as a kid and it led to a lot of problems. I didn't fit in, didn't understand why I was different. And that, that manifested in wanting to originally play AFL and training on an extreme level where I um, became so obsessed that I would, you know, exercise for six hours a day as a young kid. And I guess, you know, looking back, I was doing it because I had all these thoughts going through my head and so much energy and didn't know where to place it. So that was the only thing that made me feel in control and feel alive. Um, and that just ended up taking me down a, a very destructive path. I, I was about 15, 16, and it stunted my growth. I didn't even hit puberty till I was 16, almost 17. And that, that gave me trauma from not growing and developing. And then my body broke down when I finally did develop. And then I had to stop. And then I discovered alcohol. And then I felt like I had no meaning or purpose. And, and that was sort of a, you know, a long period, about a four-year period of abusing alcohol, getting in trouble, being lost, doing nothing, not wanting a future. And, and it's why I'm so passionate now about, I guess, sharing what I went through and trying to, it, it really highlighted to me, you know, in schooling, um, in education, how we're not taught enough about this. You know, if I had been taught this stuff, I might've been able to avoid some of the things that I went through, but I find it crazy that, you know, the system's so archaic and we're taught all these things that a lot of it, we actually don't need in this day and age yet. We're not, and there is more of it now, but when, in my mind, it should be above literally everything. Like it should be fundamental that we need to, on a very deep level, from a very young age, be properly talked about and taught how can I learn all these emotional things because that's going to affect your life every day for the rest of your life. Thinking back to that 12-year-old, you're working really hard physically. What was some of that internal dialogue? What was really driving you? 
Um, there is a compulsion to do more, to be better than everyone else, to push, to know that I could push myself harder than anyone else. It's hard to explain because it wasn't actually logical. It was sort of, and I, I think I knew it wasn't logical, but I couldn't help it. it. I guess it's like an addiction where it's such a compulsive behavior. And like I said, I had severe OCD at the time and um, there were just compulsive things happening where it, it was helping me cope, but I just couldn't control it, didn't understand it enough. And it would just be this absolute just need to do these things on an extreme level, or I didn't feel safe. I didn't feel like I could go to bed until I had done all of these different things that I'd set my, for myself. So, and it just kept getting more and more out of control. And it sounds like a vicious cycle because you're physically pushing your body so hard and then getting up early. So that disrupted sleep and then talking about puberty. And I found that really interesting in your book, the impact for a young male when you hit puberty a bit later. And it's something that I've heard time and time again from males that have left school, just how challenging that can be. Yeah, I mean, that was, I mean, I've been talking about sharing my story for over 10 years, but the that part I didn't really talk about until not that long ago, because even now I feel embarrassed and ashamed talking about, you know, I feel sort of cr myself cringing when I'm talking about it, that I didn't hit puberty until I was almost 17. And because it's like, you know, I, I felt like an outcast. I felt a lot of shame about it. I isolated myself. I was you know, I felt like I couldn't fit in, didn't interact with females because I was just like, okay, like I felt just felt like something was wrong with me. And it probably did create that narrative in my mind that even to this day, I'm, you know, still dealing with the aftermath of and obviously nowhere near as severe. But, you know, there's always there was that thought in there that, okay, something's fundamentally wrong with me and I don't fit in. All these thoughts that, you know, you, if you think if you have that happening on a severe enough level for enough years, that story becomes ingrained and it's, it's tough to undo. And again, you know, a big thing about what I talk about in this area about trying to gain that self-awareness, being honest, understanding all these different stories that we tell ourselves and trying to rationalize them and trying to look at it. Okay, hang on. Is this actually real? Is this serving me? Maybe it's actually not. Maybe it's not true. How do I start to chip away at a new and create a new belief system and and remind myself that even though this thought is making me feel these horrible emotions it doesn't mean that it's true and it takes time but you know you can change that but it takes effort and it takes as you said that awareness that our thoughts aren't facts our thoughts aren't necessarily true yeah that's the thing it's it's a weird thing because our thoughts are just in our head yet our mind makes us think that it's true and we think that everyone else must be thinking these same things, but no one else, you know, actually knows what's going through our head and we can be thinking all these horrible thoughts or I think we can all relate, you know, you're in a social situation and you're feeling self-conscious and you're worrying about what people are thinking of you or did I do this right or this wrong or am I being judged for doing this? And in your, in your own mind, it feels like such a, you know, anxiety-inducing feeling, but the other people in the room might actually not be even on any level thinking about that. Remind yourself, I think the key is not trying to remove the thought or the feeling, but more accepting it and and trying to choose yourself whether you want to give that thought power or not. Because if you think to yourself, oh, I'm feeling you know scared right now, what's wrong with me? I'm weak, I'm pathetic, then you're going to make it worse. But if you think, you know what, I'm feeling really terrified right now, that's because of this story I've told myself that I'm not good enough, but I know that's actually not true and I'm going to go and do it anyway and I'm probably going to feel uncomfortable doing it and my mind's going to tell me something bad will happen, but I'm going to trust that it's okay and 
doing that over and over again. And the example I always talk about was when I had been through this long period where, like, like I was saying in the story before, where I'd sort of finished at school, dropped out of university, really fallen off the rails, abusing alcohol, I was doing nothing. When I finally got through that and I had almost become catatonic, could get, barely get out of bed, I started seeing a psychologist and just took baby steps to move forward and got into this new course at university. It was a business entrepreneurship course. We had to do about 15 um, talks in the first semester. And I was trying to pull out of the course because I was so terrified. And you know, this was in front of like five people, but yeah, really small groups of people. But I was just so scared of talking in front of anyone that I was trying to pull out, met the course coordinator and only stayed doing it because I knew that, you know, I, I had to do something. Um, and I'd be vomiting in the bathroom before reading off a sheet of paper, mumbling these words. And I had to keep doing so many of them. And one of my worst fears was coming true. I was doing a pretty bad job, but nothing bad actually happened. And it was to this day, you know, the most, one of the most important lessons I learned because eventually, because we had to do so many, I thought, you know what, who gives a fuck? Like I, that's right. I don't know if I'm meant to swear on here. Go for it. <laughs> I st stopped caring and then I'd have these thoughts still coming up thinking, okay, you know, like you're not good enough. Why, you know, no one wants to hear what you have to say, but it would be almost a whisper where I could be like, oh no, that's, I know that thought's not true. I'm going to do it. And then, you know, so they don't really go away, but you just move forward anyway. And it, I think that applies. Like, there's so many scenarios every day of all of our lives where we have different versions of that, maybe on, you know, less severe, sometimes more severe levels um, where we can apply it. So I think it's just, it's a critical thing for all of us. And normalizing that human experience, you know, I've taught in all boys schools before and I remember teaching a year nine class where it physically feels like there's men in the room shaving, like it's all happening. And then you've got boys that seem more like boys, but inside they're still the same. They still want that longing. They still want to know that they're okay, that they're safe that people care about them, that they understand them. So we look at the physical of somebody and not notice what's going on in their internal life and how powerful would it be if we could normalize these conversations that growth looks different for different people and that you may be feeling like, oh, I'm growing too quick and someone else is probably thinking I'm growing too slow and having these conversations and to think that you went through a period of life where you didn't want to do public speaking, you avoided it at any cost and now you speak and noticing that it was that consistent practice that got you there. I think that's a thing we're not really taught in life that, you know, there is no finish line and there's no such thing as perfect and everyone's going through a different thing at a different time and society's taught us that we should be trying to strive for you know whatever it is and that when we finally get there we're going to be okay but it's not really how it works it's sort of every at every given time you know you might have one thing that's going really well in your life but then there's a new area that you might need to work on and everyone has different versions of that so exactly like you said if we could learn to have more compassion and empathy for other people and for ourselves and just all be honest. I think if everyone was honest, then there wouldn't really be big of an issue because we're, we're still going to all have different things we're dealing with. But if we're honest, then we can relate. And, you know, I have to surround myself in my personal life now around people that are similar to me and able to talk very openly about this stuff because I find that refreshing. We can help each other and it makes everything feel just so much easier. Whereas if you're around people that can't do that, then you start to feel like, oh, well, maybe there's something wrong with me if I can't connect or I can't, you know, be understood and I can't hear from other people. Because when we're telling ourselves that, you know, why am I struggling so much? Why is this so difficult for me? Why do I have all these problems? 
I must have something wrong with me, we'll start to believe it if we don't hear it from other people. But, you know, as soon as you do, you see other people are going through a similar thing. You think, okay, that's refreshing. I've, it's actually okay. You know, this is normal. And you notice that when you're with those people, your body can really relax because you know that you don't have to put on a show. You don't have to pretend that you can be yourself as you are, strengths and struggles. Exactly, which is so refreshing and, you know, it's how we should feel. There's too much of all the other stuff where you have to put on a different front and appease people and pretend to be someone you're not. And at the end of the day, you know, if you can't just be yourself and be accepted for that, then you've got to really question, are you in the right environment? Are there other ways I could approach this? Because it's exhausting and it's not healthy to, to have to be someone you're not. Reading your book, I did have a bit of a laugh when you took up the challenge to do Dancing with the Stars. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, I mean, that was, to this day, the most terrified I've ever been in my life. I And that happened sort of, so I guess I'd had that experience I was talking about before where I had been sort of off the rails, went back to university, had to get over this, at the time, my biggest fear in the world of just talking in front of people. And, you know, it started to sort of get things back on track. And So you choose to dance. Well, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Don't know why, but um, I'd been sort of thrown into the modeling world a bit and there was a bit of media around and then I got asked to go on this show. And it was, I think, just the year after I'd finished at university, I was about to say no to doing it because I had all those fears coming up and I thought, what the hell, how, you know, I, I can't do this. I got over this fear of speaking, but I wouldn't even dance when I'm, you know, out with my friends and you got an audience there and 3 million people watching it live. I was like, this is, no, I can't do it. But the competitive side sort of kicked in and I thought, well, you know, I wanted to be a professional athlete. This is like going to fuel that same feeling and I wanted to help in mental health and you got to work, you got to raise money for a charity. So I was working with Beyond Blue at the time. Um, so I, I couldn't say no, but then I sort of, after I had said yes, I woke up in a cold sweat thinking, you know, what the hell have I got myself in for here and called the producer and was about to pull out of it and um, luckily didn't. I thought, you know, I've got to just use this as a way to try and um, push through some of my, further push through some of my own fears. And, and yeah, I was probably one of the worst dancers um, in that in the history of that show but managed to stay in it, in it for a while and, um, and, yeah, it helped me to really come further out of myself and it's helped me ever since because anything I do now whenever I'm terrified about doing something I think hang on am I as scared as I was back then and I never am I'm like okay I'll, that was more confronting so I can do it then I know I did that so it was sort of like an amazing thing in that sense to, to do it. I absolutely love it because for so many people listening they, they're thinking public speaking is bad enough let alone getting up and dancing in front of people and this is why your story is so inspiring because it's about continuing to challenge ourselves and then we've got this evidence that we can do uncomfortable things. We can get through it. As you say now, when things get tough, you think, well, it's not as bad as that dancing thing that I did. Like, I can do this. I've got capacity and I've got autonomy. And that's the thing. And, you know, I'm, I sort of have periods where then you don't want to challenge yourself. But, like, I do have that mindset where um, even following that, you know, getting into acting and some of the things I'm now pursuing, it is that constant thing of just pushing yourself to get out of your comfort zone and keep, you know, trying new things and pushing for it because it's so hard to get yourself to do it and you'll be fighting against so many factors to try and do it. But then when you do do these things that, I mean, provided you sort of do want to actually do them deep down, 
when you push yourself out of your comfort zone, you feel so much fulfillment for doing it and, you know, so much growth comes out of it. That sort of, I think it's the best personal development sort of thing you can do, but our natural instinct is to not want to be out of our comfort zone. And I think in this day and age, it's harder than ever because we all want instant gratification and we can hide behind screens and, you know, social media and, I don't know, there's just so many different things going on that there's so many excuses not to have to go and, you know, push yourself to do things like that. So like I was saying, fall into not wanting to push myself as well. And I think we need to, we need to follow our gut and do what, you know, sometimes what, what's good for us isn't the easy option. Yeah, I've kind of come to learn that pretty much everything that's good for me, I don't really feel like doing and it requires effort and vice versa. Everything that's not so good for me just feels effortless. Probably my worst habit is go and buy like bags of chips and dip or whatever and put Netflix on and, you know, do that late at night to turn my brain off. And I find it so relaxing, but nothing positive comes out of it. You know, that's like a a simple, a small example, but you never sort of, I guess that's a good way to think of it. What positives came out of it? Did I feel better or worse for doing these things? And the things that are hard, we normally do feel better. And the things that um, aren't good for us, like very rarely do we feel better. We normally feel actually worse when we do it. You know, really, I'm thinking about that pack of chips. Like nothing is more satisfying than opening the packet in that first few. Yeah. <laughs> like it feels so good in the moment, but you never feel that same sense of satisfaction once the bag's finished. No, you feel yuck and you you sort of want more or you just feel lethargic and um yeah, nothing nothing positive comes out of it. <laughs> and that's a good thing to really think about is what are the habits that sort of keep us stuck or what do we do that started out as like, oh, it's a bit of a late night thing and then it becomes a bit of a ritual and then also noticing what really works for us, what helps us gain momentum, what gives us a real uplift. So I'm curious to know what's your relationship now with exercise and how does that help you? Yeah, I mean, my relationship with exercise now is super positive. It's been, I guess, such a part of my life, like from, you know, having that competitive background, obviously it was, you know, got unhealthy. But I guess when I went through that really dark period, when I started coming out of it, the one thing that really helped me was exercise. And and it's the same to this day. And I mean, there's other things I do. I meditate and um, acting, creative things are so important for me as well. But fundamentally, I, I train six days a week. I have one day off, but it's sort of more for the mental health side that I do it. And, you know, it's not compulsive, but it's more, I've got to do something. So I'm either in the gym, um, going for a run, getting myself moving, doing something, but it's, you know, a one hour period every day where I just have to do it. Ideally in the morning as well, I find I can wake up and my mind's going a million miles an hour and you're not thinking rationally. So I find if I can get myself out of bed and go to the gym, get moving, you know, within five, 10 minutes, you feel clear and amazing. And then after I'm just feeling so good for the day and I've just found it life-changing really. It's sort of, for me, the most important thing to, to do that every day. It's sort of, and, and also I think having these habits, um, like I was talking about earlier with how important, you know, creating habits are, having your own version of that doesn't have to be exercise, um, but having these things where, you know, the world could be falling apart around me Um, And there's so many things we can't control day to day, but I know on a fundamental level, I can go and exercise and do these things that make me feel good and that are, you know, in my control. So it gives you a bit of peace of mind, you know, when stressful things around you are happening as well. 
And I love how you really know yourself and you know that it's common for you to experience that anxiety in the morning. So that's why exercise is so important for you. What would it be like if for whatever reason you didn't exercise for a day or two? Do you start to notice? I really do. Even sometimes like Sundays normally are the day I'll have off. And I'll notice on the Monday, I'll often, if I haven't moved around like and done enough on the Sunday, I'll feel agitated and my skin's starting to crawl. I'm not, I'm feeling more irritable. I'm not feeling as clear. Um, and if it went for more days, which very rarely has actually happened because I just, you know, it's sort of like eating food for me, I have to do it. But if I do, I'll feel, yeah, I, I won't be able to think clearly. I'll, have less energy actually i'll be yeah very frustrated um negative about a lot of things it's just yeah it's actually quite profound how big the the change is from doing it i know for myself that if i don't exercise in a 48 hour period i'm exactly the same i feel like my skin's crawling i'm really edgy really short with people there was a transition in my life where i used to exercise to look good or to be a part of a sports team but then now it's for my mental health and so i can be present in my relationships and it's so much more than that physical element that we need to do it for ourselves and to get moving so what would be your advice for people that really struggle to get moving? Um, yeah, I think that's a really good question. I've had so many friends over the years that have tried to do it for the wrong reasons, I guess, and not been able to stick to it. And and really my advice for exercise or anything else is, you know, you've got to find a way to make these things enjoyable and also part of your routine in the sense of, you know, I've got to brush my teeth every day. I've got to eat food, drink water, work, exercise. Like it's got to just be effortless in being part of it. So I think what the problem a lot of people that don't enjoy these things and try and make it into a routine, they'll set the bar too high or they might, you know, try and push themselves too far at the beginning and they instantly have like a negative feeling associated with it. So I think finding how can I do this, even if it is, you know, even if you feel like, okay, it's not going to bring all I can handle to enjoy it is, you know, 20 minutes a day or 15 minutes or whatever it is, that's going to be better than, than doing nothing and more sustainable. So taking that pressure off and just trying to find a reason, a way to enjoy it. And, you know, if you do that long enough and it becomes ingrained enough and you feel the benefits, you naturally probably will actually increase it and change that relationship over time. And, and also, you know, um, like you were saying, like, we both exercise now for the, because we understand the mental health benefits of it. I think finding that, you know, like if you're exercising just for the vanity sort of level, that's not, it's not sustainable because it's not, there's not enough meaning behind it. You might be able to do it if you've got a short term sort of goal where I want to look like this for whatever, some event or whatever it is, but that, how can you sustain that? Whereas if it's, I do it because it actually on a day to day basis makes me feel significantly better. Well, that's an incredibly powerful reason. So, you know, you've got to find these deep and meaningful long-term reasons to, to do these things, otherwise incredibly hard to sustain. Yes, that's so true. When we tap into the why we're doing it, we're much more likely to keep at it compared to an eight-week challenge or something like that. When it comes to your acting, you know, when I think about acting, it looks pretty glamorous from what we see, but I'm sure that it's not so glamorous behind the scenes. How do you manage all of that discomfort? Uh, yeah, it's definitely not glamorous. I think it's, um, I mean, the the tiny, you know, 0.1% of seeing people on a red carpet or whatever is probably a bit glamorous, but the actual what goes into it is 
I think actually more soul destroying than most industries. Um, so I think again, you know, and even if you did, and I've met some actors that have had a lot of success that aren't happy, some that are, but I think the reason for doing it needs to be the same as anything else. A bit, not about, you know, I want to do this to become famous or be successful. It's do I enjoy doing it? You know, what, what am I getting out of doing it? And, um, and I had to have a break from auditioning for a while because I was losing part of that. Because initially when I got into it, I was really scared because I wanted to do it for a while and I you know, didn't know what I was doing. But it was the best, you know, personal development thing I could have ever done for myself because you have to learn, you have to get over your ego, you're having to understand yourself inside out. You have to, if you're playing a character, you've got to, play it from a point of no judgment. So you can actually really look at, okay, how did this person come to these decisions? What's happened to them to lead them to that and have empathy for them, even if they're a bad person. And I found that fascinating and I found it to sort of help me grow myself. And I, you know, just ended up loving it. And then the reason I had to have a break was because I had done all of that. Then I had a thing on neighbors and I was um, North America auditioning a lot. And I was getting so stressed because I was doing, you know, five, six auditions a week and you're getting sent a 10 page audition the night before. And you have to turn up at 10 AM the next morning and perform this thing in a room full of people. And you don't have time to barely, you know, learn the lines. And, and then I was trying to run my business at the same time. And, and I actually stopped, you know, enjoying it. I started resenting it. So I think it's, really finding that balance, like, again, like everything, whether it is you're running a, a podcast, I have a podcast. I've actually even had that same thing happen with the podcast where it's my fa- one of my favorite things to do. I just love having these conversations, but, and I loved it for the first year. And then I started putting pressure, you know, why is it not growing more? I want to monetize this more, blah, blah, blah. And then I stopped enjoying it. So then I had to strip it back to hang on, forget all of that. You know, for, it'd be great, obviously, if it blew up or whatever, but that's not why I'm doing it. Let's just go back to the absolute bare bones of just enjoying these conversations. And I think it, you know, it becomes an analogy for whatever the hell we're doing. So that's like how I've approached acting again now and, you know, really sort of enjoying it again. That is such a powerful message for all of us to think about the why and enjoying the moment, being present with what is. I know for me, every time I sit down to have one of these conversations, the world just stops. I'm in flow and I'm present to whatever someone's saying. And it is such a gift because so much of our life is fast paced, that's distracted. There are things happening at such high speeds and so much is out of our control. And to find spaces where we feel like we can be present, where we can enjoy it. So I'm imagining when you're acting, there can be times where you can really feel like you are the character, you're in the moment and life can just pass you by. Oh, exactly. And I mean, same thing for me, you know, doing the podcast, doing a talk. Um, That's why I fell in love with acting because it's just really about, you know, being in that moment and exploring what's going on in that performance, in that scene. If you're trying to perform a scene and have a conversation with the other actor and you're thinking about other things going on in your life, then you're not going to be, you're going to be pulled out of the performance. So to perform properly, you have to be, you know, in the same as us having this conversation. If we're not actually engaged in listening to each other, then how can we, you know, proper value to the conversation? So that's what I, that's why I love it. I love all those kind of pursuits because it, it is, you know, so difficult in day-to-day life to feel connected like that. So it's sort of anything that gives you that, um, I think is amazing. And it rem- I think it gives us a reminder of, hey, this is what life's meant to be about. It's not meant to be about projecting into the future and worrying about the past and, you know, panicking about this and 
you know, beating ourselves up and I don't know, all the things we, we all do to ourselves that, you know, it's, we're meant to just connect, help each other. We don't have to have every, all the answers, but you know, it's hard to do. We live in a world where <laughs> we're constantly getting pulled out of that. Yeah. And so creating pockets where we can be present, where we can have deep and meaningful conversations and really enjoy what we're doing. And I'd love to know, how do you think we can better support young men with their mental health? Yeah, I think it's, it's so important. And I think, you know, for men to talk about it is critical. Um, I mean, there's more awareness than ever now and stigmas have been broken down, but I think there still is, you know, a lot of stigma for men to talk about it. So I think we need education. We need people to understand that it's okay to talk about it. I think we need more um, being done in schools. We need more conversations, more programs, more leaders speaking out about it. And like I was saying, on a core level, we just need young men to understand that it is actually part of life to go through all these different emotional difficulties. You know, it's the same as the physical side. We're going to have problems physically. We're going to have problems mentally in our lives. That's actually part of life. Understanding that that'll happen to everyone and it's healthy to talk about it and ask for help. And, you know, it doesn't mean we're weak. It doesn't mean we're less of a man if we talk about these things. And we just, yeah, need that awareness and education and understanding to, to do it, that facility to talk about it. Yeah, it's amazing what can happen when you are in spaces with young men and they do have the permission to share and talk. It's quite magic. It is, yeah. And I've seen that a lot in the talks I've done in schools where I've gone in there and, um, you know, even at the beginning, it's people have been very standoffish and, you know, you can always tell when they're not listening or they're not wanting to be there. And, and then, you know, by the end of it, when you found a way in and you've really, you know, you can see that they're connecting. I've had you know, kids come up and break down or go and I've heard back from teachers where they've gone and gotten help and finally, you know, talked about what they're going through for the first time. And it's not because I went in there and did anything unique. It was because these kids are craving hearing permission, I guess, to talk about it and hearing that they're not alone in what they're going through. So once they understand that fundamentally, then they can go and get that help and make that change and, and, and then feel the benefit of, of doing that. And then they can grow into men that provide that space for other men and women in the workplace and really create this environment where there is a permission to be human and permission to seek help when you need it. Exactly. Which is, again, it's a systemic sort of problem. And, you know, a lot of these current issues are just a a generational and parents didn't get taught from their parents and it'll go on and on until the next generation changes it. So Unless a big change happens, I think it starts in schooling. If it doesn't change there, then I don't see how that's going to get broken. But if we can, and like you're saying, then these men or women can go and then set that example, then they can educate their children, then you've broken the cycle. If, if that happens for long enough on a broad enough level, but you know, I really do believe that is fundamentally how you know this is going to change on a, on a long-term scale. Otherwise, it becomes a lot of Band-Aid solutions. For sure. So to wrap up this incredible conversation, Nick, I'd love to invite you to finish four sentences. Are you up for that? Sure. I'll, I'll give it my best. <laughs> I am inspired by. I'm inspired by just learning, being curious and trying to remind myself that I don't have all of the answers, actually don't have many answers at all. So by just trying to improve. When life feels hard? When life feels hard, that's normally when we know that something good is going to come out the other side. And that's actually where we learn the most. An underrated skill is? 
listening. And I'm looking forward to? Uh, a lot of things, but I'd say at the moment I'm, I'm looking forward to being back in Australia and seeing the family. Excellent. Thanks so much, Nick, for being a guest on the School of Wellbeing podcast. Thanks so much for having me. Appreciate it. What a powerful and honest conversation. As I was chatting with Nick, I was reminded how important it is for us to hear real stories and particularly for our young men to be in the presence of other men that are comfortable to share their struggles and their strengths. Nick's book, Move Your Mind, How to Build a Healthy Mindset for Life is now available in store and online. To learn more about Nick and the wonderful work he's doing in the world, visit his website, nickbrax.com. If you love this episode, please share it with anyone you think would benefit from hearing Nick's stories and the lessons he has learned along the way. To learn how I can help you and your school community thrive, visit my website, openmindeducation.com. There you can book me to speak at your next professional development day or inquire about my game-changing workplace wellbeing program, Thrive by Design. You can find all the links from today's episode at openmindeducation.com forward slash episode 55. Thank you for listening to this episode of the School of Wellbeing and I look forward to sharing more heartfelt conversations with you next week. 